Here's a question for you first of all. See if you know who this is. Is anyone out there? It's got his name in the background, doesn't it? Big clue. <laughs> Every day of the week, Monday to Friday, 25 past nine, you can tune into ITV and watch the Jeremy Kyle show. This, I, I need to help our American friends and uh, possibly our Iranian friends and possibly the, those of you who work during the day and don't have time to watch daytime TV. Jeremy, the Jeremy Carl Show is based on family confrontations in which the guests attempt to resolve their differences um, by appearing on the show and being helped by Jeremy Carl to plot through their difficulties. There's often anger and tears as family members argue about who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Some people think it's compelling TV. I couldn't possibly comment. I don't know. Maybe our culture is obsessed with dysfunctional families. Here's some of the headlines from some of the episodes that have been on over, over the last... There's been over a thousand episodes of this show. I couldn't believe that when I read that stat. Um, you, you can see the kind of things that Jeremy Kyle is trying to unravel and iron out. We're continuing our studies in the book of Genesis, and the chapter we're looking at today, I think, would make a great episode on the Jeremy Kyle show. The headline, this headline here is never going to end well. Mum helps twin dress up as his brother to con their old blind dad and steal the inheritance. That's basically what happens in chapter 27. This is the real human life story of a family that is disintegrating and falling apart. There's only four characters in this whole chapter. Uh, Mum and Dad, Isaac and Rebecca, and their two twin brothers, Esau and Jacob. You know now, if you've been listening over the last few weeks, you know now that this family... It's the chosen family that the living God intends to bless the whole world through. This family carries within it the seed of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would be born one day. These are his ancestors, this very family. And it all started so well. One writer says this, Isaac and Rebecca's marriage was made with care and their kids were bathed in prayer. Abraham wanted his son Isaac to find a good wife and he did. And at first they loved one another deeply. We read in Genesis how they prayed for their twin boys before they were born. And they knew the presence and power and blessing of God in their family life. So I have to say, chapter 27, this Jeremy Carr chapter, must come as a bit of a shock. Surely families are meant to support one another, love one another. But here in this chapter, we find these four characters lying, cheating, competing, and hating one another. 
It's emphasised in the clever way the narrator writes the chapter. I don't know if you noticed when Joan read to us that the vast majority of this chapter is speech. It's a script. It isn't really description of what happened. The narrator tells the story through hearing the ca- these four characters speak. But do you know, not once in this chapter do the four of them talk together. The chapter is a series of scenes where each pair is talking with one another behind the backs of the other two. It's kind of written in a way that emphasizes their relational breakdown. Isaac and Rebecca used to be close, but in this chapter, they're barely on speaking terms. These twin brothers hate each other so much, they were even fighting in the womb before they came out. We never hear anything directly from God in this chapter, and none of these four characters, Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob, come out of this chapter with any credit whatsoever what's the point you don't come to church to be made miserable do you what's the point well people do watch the Jeremy Carl show um, I don't know is, it, is this meant to be compelling viewing is it meant to make us feel better to see another family falling apart hey the point is I think that God is big enough to give his blessing to messed up people who don't deserve it. The Bible has a special word for this. It's called grace. Grace. The undeserved kindness of a God who is big enough to give his blessing to people who don't deserve it. In other words, the narrator here is not just trying to show us how self-centered they all were, but how outward-looking and generous the grace of God is despite their failure. I think we can learn at least three things about the grace of God in this chapter. First of all, we've said it already, it's undeserved. No one in this chapter could say, hey, God blessed me because I deserved it. Not one of them has anything to boast about. Anything that God does here, he does freely because he wants to, not because he owes them anything. Secondly, I want to suggest to you that God's grace is unstoppable. Even their failure couldn't prevent God from doing whatever he pleased. They could not derail God's plans and purposes. And thirdly, I want to suggest to you that God's grace is unlimited. It's not quite the right word, that, but I wanted it to begin with un, so it matched the other two. Here's what I mean by unlimited. If the grace of God depended on them somehow living up to some moral standard, these four people would surely all be lost. 
And yet, we're told in Genesis that God chose Jacob before he was even born. And before he'd done anything good or bad, that means that there's no limit to his grace. God can give his blessing to anybody he chooses to give it to. And this fact, actually, is their greatest hope. Their failure in this chapter was very big. But I want, I, what I want you to hear this afternoon is that the grace of God is bigger still. I hope you'll see today that this grace from God, it, it, it's the greatest thing that you and I can possibly know. So I'm glad you came. <laughs> I'm glad you came. What a privilege to hear of this amazing God and his grace. My prayer, though, is that you won't just hear about it this afternoon, but that you will be so taken with it that you'll embrace it and believe it and stake your very life upon it. So, here's what we're going to do. Uh, my name's not Jeremy Kyle, it's Ian, but we're going to do what Jeremy Kyle does. You know what he does in the show? He brings the family members on one by one, and he interviews them, and then he brings the next one in. So we're going to look at this chapter through the eyes of each family member. So let's hear the father's story first. Isaac is his name, as you've seen. The father's story is one of fighting God's grace. I want you to notice, first of all, that Isaac, the dad, tries to give his oldest son Esau his blessing secretly. Why do I say that? Well, we'll come to the blessing later. So, we'll, we'll get to that. Normally, in this ancient culture, when a man came to the end of his life and he knew he was dying, what he would do is he would call all of his family members. This actually happens later on in Genesis when Jacob does this. He'd call all his family, all of his children. He'll gather them around his bedside and he'll basically give them his blessing and instructions before he dies. What happens here is very different. Let's just read again verses 1 to 4. When Isaac was very old, was it was it old, sorry, and his eyes were weak so that he could no longer see, he called for his elder son Esau and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man. I don't know the day of my death. Now then, Get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Do you notice the difference there with how I described it? He doesn't call Jacob or Rebecca. He seems to secretly send a little message to Esau and say, Son, come here. I want to give you my blessing. He does, he's not even conscious that he's about to die. He knows he's old, but he actually says to Esau, I don't know when I'm going to die. Go and hunt me some food, cook me a nice meal just the way I like it, and then I'll give you my blessing. 
He's trying to give his blessing to his favorite son, secretly. You get the sense here that Rebecca, he doesn't want Rebecca and Jacob to know. Maybe that's why in verse 5, Rebecca's eavesdropping. Maybe she doesn't trust him and she knows something. Oh, that pesky husband of mine. She's having a little listen at the door. She's waiting for this very moment. And then she goes into overdrive. Why is he being so underhand? I want to suggest to you there's two reasons. Number one, the reason Isaac needs to be underhand here is because actually he knows the will of God for his family. Even before their kids were born, maybe this was in better days, Isaac and Rebekah prayed. And back in chapter 25 and verse 23, this is what God told them. These two twins were born, Esau first, Jacob was the younger one, when they prayed, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. In other words, God told Isaac and Rebekah, while these boys were still in the womb, that the firstborn blessing would actually come to the younger son and that the older one would serve the younger one. So Isaac knew without a shadow of a doubt back in 25, chapter 25 that God had chosen Jacob to be the child of the promise. God had chosen Jacob to bear the messianic seed. So that's reason number one. Isaac knows that Esau shouldn't get the blessing. It should be going to Jacob. But reason number two is that Esau's behavior was poor. Joan, I, I, this, this chapter, this uh, whole story is longer than what Joan read to us, but um, we just read a, a short central part of it. Just look at the end of chapter 26. It says there that where, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. Verse 35, they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Remember that when Isaac had been Esau's age, his father, Abraham, had sought for him a godly wife who understood their worship of God. So either Esau is basically going against his parents' wishes, or Isaac has basically given up trying to teach him like Abraham had taught him. And the point here isn't about ethnicity. This, this isn't about race. This is about faith. Esau married a pagan, well, not just one pagan woman, two pagan women who didn't worship the God of his grandfather, Abraham. And it's bitter for his parents. I, the, there's nothing more painful, I think, as a parent than possibly than seeing one of your children do something that you know is wrong. 
But Isaac's love for Esau seems to blind him. Again in chapter 25, verse 27, it says this, the boys grow up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Here's the point I'm trying to make. You get the sense here that Isaac is thinking to himself, why not Esau, God? He's the strong one. He's the short one. He's the manly one. If ever there was going to be a leader, it surely has to be Esau. Not Jacob. Esau can run and fight and hunt and look after himself. Surely he's the one that God should have chosen. This is a big mistake. It's not fair. And to make matters worse for Isaac, his wife loved Jacob. Was it because she believed the promise? We don't know. But this parental favoritism is the beginning of this family falling apart. So here, Isaac tries to bless Esau behind the rest of the family's back. He's fighting against God's choice of Jacob. He wants Esau to be the one. And when he fights against God's grace, he has to disregard on the one hand what God had directly said to him, and disregard, on the other hand, Esau's poor behavior, he's fighting against God. Maybe it's his love for tasty food that blinds him. I don't know. They didn't have Macadies in those days. But how many times does the narrator say, just the way I like it? All the way through this chapter, make me a tasty meal, you know, just the way I like it. Then Rebecca says the same thing to Jacob. I'll cook him a, I'll cook him a meal just the way your dad likes it. Is it? Here he is, an old man, and all he can think about is tasty food. He's fighting against God and just serving his own appetites. So while Esau's out hunting the food, Rebecca eavesdrops, she hears this, and she goes to Jacob and says, now's the moment. Esau's a hairy man, Jacob is a smooth man, so she sticks goat skins on his hands and the part of his neck. Isaac's eyesight is failing. And all the way through this next scene, Isaac seems suspicious, doesn't he? It's like Isaac's on edge because he senses something isn't quite right. When Jacob comes in with the meal that his mum's cooked, he didn't even do the work. His mum cooks the meal, gives it to him on a tray, and he takes it into his dad. And his dad says, how did you get that so quick? And as quick as a flash, Jacob says, well, the Lord my God helped me. It's almost blasphemous. His mum's just cooked it. Then in verse 22, Jacob says, why is your voice so funny? You feel like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. Maybe his voice hasn't broken. I don't, well, they're 40 years old, aren't they? His voice must have broken. But he's... He's not got the rough, manly voice of Esau. You feel like Esau, you smell like Esau, you sound like Jacob. All the way through, we're expecting Isaac to rip the disguise off Jacob and reveal the deceit. 
And eventually, he gives Jacob, the younger son, the blessing, even though he thinks it's Esau. And then Esau comes in. He's been hunting. The tents are quiet. His dad's in bed. He goes and cooks the meal. He brings it in to his dad. Let's uh, skip down to verse 30. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food, brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. Isaac tried to give the blessing in secret. I want you to notice here that he eventually, painfully, admits defeat. This poignant moment when Isaac realizes that Jacob has deceived him. Verse 33 couldn't be more expressive. He, in the Hebrew, he trembled violently. But his words are revealing I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. This is a massive crisis in Isaac's life. He's been fighting against the grace of God all of his life. It's led him to fighting with his wife. It's led him to showing favoritism to one son and possibly neglecting the other one. And now finally he says, and indeed he will be blessed. Isn't it striking that Isaac doesn't express any anger that Jacob's deceived him? The reason he's trembling is not because he's angry. It's the fact that he has known all along that this day would come. He knew somehow it would end like this. He's been fighting all of his life. This cry is a cry of defeat. The reason Isaac trembles is because he's lost. He finally has to accept that God, in his grace, has chosen Jacob. Indeed, he will be blessed. One writer says this, before a great work of grace, there may be a great earthquake. Isaac had put his personal love of Esau ahead of the will of God and down came his idol and the edifice of willful love collapsed before the shaking power that took hold of him. The arrogant pride which had slyly planned to thwart God toppled to the ground. 
broken beyond repair, when Isaac trembled exceedingly, all his desires were shattered. Isaac's problem had been that he wanted the strong one to be the chosen one. The grace of God that searches out the underdog and the weak was an offence to him. He ends up fighting God for decades because God's grace makes him angry. Why can't you pick the other one? Surely it must depend on human merit. Surely there's something I can do or we can do to deserve God's blessing. He just can't understand why God would be gracious to those who don't seem worthy of his kindness. When it comes to the crunch, it brings him to the most profound crisis of his life. It is literally like an earthquake inside of him. Listen, much, much later in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul could write to Christian believers in Corinth, they possibly felt like Jacob. Paul writes this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Grace of God. There's nothing you or I can do to earn the grace of God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace, would it? Hey, let me uh, draw a couple of lessons from Rebecca and Esau more briefly so that we can get to Jacob. Because I want to get to Jacob. Here's the mother's story. Jeremy Kyle, mother comes in next. If the father has been fighting God's grace, Rebecca's story is that she's been trying to manipulate it. Rebecca also knows that Jacob is the child of the promise. Her problem is that she's willing to do anything to make it happen. When we first meet Rebecca, the picture we get in Genesis is of this beautiful, energetic, generous woman. But in this chapter, all of that energy and industry has descended into controlling, manipulative behavior. As Isaac lets things slide, Rebecca begins to scheme. Some writers think that she did what she did because she had faith in the promise that God had given us, given them. But how can you justify her encouraging Jacob to dress up as his brother 
in order to deceive his dad, her husband. If this is where their marriage had got to, imagine what it was like after this, when Isaac finds out what Rebecca has done. I think the lesson here is this, that the end doesn't justify the means. Sometimes the outcome is right, but the way we go about getting there can be very wrong. We think to ourselves, hey, it doesn't matter what counts is that good comes from it. I can tell you that Rebecca paid a high price for this deception because she never saw the son she loved again. I think Rebecca teaches us that we can't manipulate the grace of God in that kind of way. Let's uh, think about the brother's story, Esau. He's a character. In many ways, Esau is the most likable person in this narrative. He seems carefree. He's an outdoorsy kind of guy. He's a man's man. But his issue is all about short-term gain with no thought for the long-term consequences. He sells his birthright for a tasty meal. Jai reminded us of that a couple of weeks ago. Esau is the guy who wants it now, not later. He lives by his feelings. He's dominated by his appetites. He's a sensual man who lives for the here and now. And the sad thing for Esau in this chapter is that there comes a point for him where it's too late. We've seen something of Isaac's violent trembling, but Esau also cuts a pathetic figure. In verse 34, let me me find verse 34 here. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. What what does that sound like? Bursting out with a loud and bitter cry. The man's in anguish. We're told a couple of verses later that he wept out loud. These are 40-odd-year-old men. He's absolutely devastated. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament says this, writing to Christian believers, See to it that you are not godless like Esau was, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he couldn't change what he'd done. In other words, it was too late. Esau is the man who didn't realize that he'd wasted his life until it was too late. It felt good while it lasted, and it ends in bitter anguish. God was a complete irrelevance to Esau. He never once desired his blessing, and neither did he ever fear God's curse. God was just a thing of no importance to him. I think Esau's a massive warning. He's one of those figures in the Bible, like Judas in the New Testament, that you look at, and he almost preaches his own sermon, doesn't he, Esau? 
and cries out from the page of the Bible, don't be like me. Listen, friends, this short life is not all there is. There is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided. And living only for the here and now and never thinking about eternity will end for some people with bitter tears like these. One day, for some people, it will be too late to repent and turn to God. It's a great warning. Hey, Jacob's story. Let's spend a little bit of time with Jacob. So, in this broken, right in the middle of this broken family, we find a grown man who will do anything to know that he's loved. Why? Because all of his life, he has watched his dad love the other one. Every time he looks out the tent door, Esau beaming with pride, Jacob delighting in his son, and Jacob in his heart thinking, Please love me, Dad. I said we would get back to this idea of blessing. We need to get to grips with the idea of blessing in this chapter. It's, it's a bit odd for us in our Western, modern culture. Sometimes if someone sneezes, we say, bless you. Sometimes if, something, if someone's happy about something, we say that they're blessed. But these guys are clearly thinking about blessing in a different way to the way we think about it. For example, Rebecca works on the basis that this blessing is a thing that can be stolen. And afterwards, it seems like it can't just be given back again. It makes you wonder, doesn't it, why Isaac, why Isaac didn't just say at the end, hey, I've changed my mind. <laughs> I know I blessed Jacob, but I thought it was Esau. I take it all back, Esau, come in, I want to bless you now instead. Not, it's like once it happens, it seems to be irrevocable, this blessing. I think that you know, don't you, that words have great power. Especially words of affirmation or condemnation. The words that other people speak to us have power to shape our lives and make us into the people that we are, for better or for worse. There is a later occasion, I mentioned it earlier, when um, Jacob gives his many sons a blessing. He gathers, he had a lot of sons. He gathers them all around his bedside and he speaks to them all individually. The first thing you notice when Jacob does this is that he knows every single one of his sons intimately. And he speaks words into their lives that kind of sum up their strengths and his fears as well about their weaknesses. He sees their potential for good and he kind of sees the mistakes that they might fall into and he blesses each one of them individually because he knows them. And Jacob's words are more than just good wishes. They're deeply personal words that will shape them and empower them 
and help them to be the people that God has created them to be. Again, the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament says that Isaac blessed his sons by faith. As he's blessing, he's trusting God that God will bring to pass the things that he is wisely speaking into their lives. This isn't fortune telling. You can't just walk up to a random person in Rotherham and say, hey, you're going to be a millionaire. That would be guessing and it would be stupid. But this kind of blessing from a father to the sons that he knows, he is speaking words of faith that are powerful that would ultimately shape their destiny. Anyway, and it's so much about blessing. That's what Jacob is desperate to get. When we did our series on shame recently, I suggested to you that what we all crave is the approval and affirmation of other people. This world says, don't base your life on what other people say about you. What counts is what you think about you. I've never yet met anyone who the whole world thought was stupid and stood there and said, I'm not stupid. What people say about us and to us shapes us. It matters. Jacob is 40 odd years old here and he can't function because he craves the affirmation of other people. Actually, what he craves is the approval of the most important person in his life, his dad. And Jacob's problem is that all of his life, the most valuable person in his life, loves somebody else. He wants that. Jacob, his whole life, is saying, Dad, please love me. All of these years, I should have been the one. This fatherly blessing and approval is what he desperately craves with all of his heart. I want to say to you something really important. Dressing up in order to get love can never work. The only way that Jacob could get the blessing he craved was to pretend to be somebody else. Just being Jacob wasn't enough. He basically has to dress up as his brother. Isn't that a really sad chapter? We've already seen how suspicious Isaac was. You get the sense that Jacob talks too much because he's nervous at first. But when Isaac says, you sound like Jacob and smell like Esau, all of his answers after that are one word. Yeah, it's me. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to give the game away. You can almost picture Rebecca in the wings giving him signals. Don't talk too much. Just let him feel your arms. And then in one last test, Isaac invites Jacob to come over and kiss him. And as Jacob bends down and kisses his dad, Isaac has this kind of epiphany that makes him erupt in blessing. Oh, the smell of the field. Oh, Esau. And he erupts in blessing. And in that moment, Jacob sees a look of pleasure on his father's face. And he thinks this is it. He has the firstborn blessing he craves. He's finally made his dear dad happy. 
Do you think it satisfied him? Do you think it satisfied him? The saddest scene in the entire chapter is here. He finally gets his dad to love him and give him the blessing. But the aching void inside doesn't go away, does it? Because he knows that his father is really only blessing Esau. And not him. His his life is based on a massive pretense. It's all a lie. Oh, friends, isn't this often how our lives are? We crave approval and we dress ourselves up in all sorts of ways in order to get it. But in the end, it can't satisfy our hearts because deep down we know it's a pretense. Do you know, we even do it with God too. Actually, Jacob realizes much later that he has really been wrestling with God this whole time. This was his deepest struggle. Jacob's question is, how can I get the most valuable being in the universe to bless me? That's the cry of his heart to his dad and to God in the end. Please bless me, know me, empower me, take pleasure in me, affirm me. I'm so desperate to know that my life matters to you. The problem for Jacob is that he is a liar and a cheat. He's pretending to be someone else in order to get the blessing he craves. Isaac here is blind. He can't tell the difference, but God can. So we're back to the beginning. If Jacob is going to find God's approval... He isn't going to get it because he deserves it, is he? Jacob's only hope is the sheer undeserved grace of God. I I think in the end that's what this story is about. Jacob is like an anxious child trying to make his parent love him. And yet God comes to him despite his trickery and pretense and sin and freely gives him the grace he needs and craves. How can that even happen? There's one more story to tell. God's story. I want to suggest to you that this story points to another father who is not blind or old, or passive. And it points to another firstborn son who is not all about short-term gain. And this heavenly father loved this firstborn son for all the ancient ages. I was trying to think of a way to say this. Do you know when you know someone and it's their birthday... And you want to buy a present for them. And you just think, what do you buy for someone who's like got everything? What, what do you buy that's going to stimulate them and make them go, wow, that's amazing? 
Just think about that in relation to God for a minute. The creator, the eternal father of all. What can there possibly be that would make God, the infinite father, go, wow. I'll tell you what, his infinite son. When the father sees the son, the son is enough to make his chest puff out with pride. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? The father says, this is my son who I love with him, I'm well pleased. In all the eternal ages, the thing that thrills the father is the son. Listen, how great must Jesus be? For him to be the one who makes the heart of his father melt in admiration. All of their eternal days they have known the pleasure and delight of one another's love. Except one. The one place where this delight was broken was the cross. Here is another earthquake moment where things trembled. Here is another loud and bitter cry. This time not Esau, but Jesus, the son, says, My God, my God, why have ye forsaken me? In that moment, he couldn't even call him father. Listen, Jacob dressed up like Esau to get the blessing. Jesus goes the other way and he dresses up like us so that the Father would give him the curse. Later in the Bible, the Apostle Paul could write, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, to who? To Abraham, might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The great irony here is that Jesus is the one who did what Rebecca said she would do. Do you remember verse 13? She said to him, let the curse fall on me. This is what Jesus did. Jesus dressed up like us so that we, poor sinners, could be dressed up like him. So when Isaac says with his trembling that Jacob will indeed be blessed, he's speaking more than he knew. Jacob will indeed be blessed, not because he deserves it, but because there's a greater man than Jacob who lavishes his kindness on those who don't deserve it. Listen, if any of you are somehow trying to dress yourself up before God to gain his approval, it can never work. You'll always be nervous, like Jacob was. The gospel is that Jesus dressed up as you. And the Father treated him as if he had done all the wrong that we've done. So that he can then treat us as if we had done all the good things that Jesus has done.
The love of God does not depend on your performance, but on his grace. And now we can please him as a father rather than fear him as a judge. Hey, my conclusion is pretty simple. God's grace. Don't fight it. Don't manipulate it. Whatever you do, don't despise it like Esau did. And know too that you can't dress up to obtain it. You can turn from all of that self-centeredness and believe in his grace. You can turn to the only father who freely gives you his grace because of Jesus, his firstborn son. We're done. I've been blessed this week just to see how much Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament fits with all of these things. Let me just take you, as we, as we close, let me take you to Romans chapter 8. I'll put the verses on the screen for you there. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption as sons. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. The spirit of God testifying with your spirit that you are his own precious child. That is what I want to know. Get that. Seek that. Pray for that. And when you know that, you'll be free to go out and bless others because the Father has blessed you and you have the riches of his grace in your heart. Hey, as our musicians come up, let's just bow and pray. In these quiet moments. Our Father... We thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for these Old Testament narratives. We thank you for these amazing stories of real people who messed up like we do. But we thank you that it points us ultimately to your undeserved, unstoppable and unlimited grace. We pray this afternoon that you would open our hearts to receive your kindness. Teach us, Lord, that we can't buy it, we can't earn it. Help us, Lord, to bow our knees to you and receive and embrace your grace shown to us in Christ, we pray. May your word have power to change our hearts and lives. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus, your Son, our Saviour. Amen.